You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for exclusive b-roll episodes tv and book reviews movie reaction recordings commentary tracks early access to content a bunch of stuff um that is at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer we have different uh tier levels so the two dollar per month tier is basically the sweet spot where you get a lot of really good stuff but if you want to do a little bit extra uh you you can go five dollars or all the way up to ten dollars per month uh all of that goes back to paying the fees to keep the podcast running and giving me a nice vote of confidence that I'm uh, not shouting into the void. Uh, so anyway, that, again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I'll have another hard sell for you guys here in a second, but I just want to introduce the show uh, tonight on Anthology. Um, this episode is a little bit of a long time coming because I uh, wanted to get this done last week, but I have had um, a busy couple of weeks. I am working on uh, just, I've, I've been hitting the pavement, just doing a lot of uh, film festival coverage for Heartland Film Festival here in Indianapolis. I'm actually writing um, reviews for Nouveau.net uh, this year for Heartland, so I've got all of that going on. So uh, my time, uh, my time for this stuff has been a little bit less uh, than ideal, but I'm having a blast doing that, and I hope you guys aren't too mad at me for <laughs> making you wait uh, a little bit extra for this uh, episode, which is covering The Fugitive, which is the 25th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on March 9th, 1962, and of course I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief non-spoiler review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 32, Beyond Return. And before I get into the episode proper, as I've been doing recently, I want to just kind of take a moment to talk about my experience from the world of fiction and science, where... I just basically break down a couple of things um, that I've done lately or, or watched or read or what have you in terms of science fiction, because I kind of always want to keep that at the forefront of my media, you know, intake and everything. Um, so uh, I will start off by saying I can't remember if I said this in the last episode. I'm sure I did. But over on Patreon at the $2 level, I've been doing episode-by-episode episode reviews of the Netflix German sci-fi series Dark, which is incredible. It is an incredible show. I'm about to start season two, and uh, I can't wait. Um, what I uh, did, though, <laughs> this previous week is basically I finished season one of Dark. So I have 10 episodes of on Patreon of me talking after each episode. Basically, it's I spend an hour up to an hour and 27 minutes 
just talking about my thoughts about the episode, about each episode. So season one of Dark has about 11 hours worth of content <laughs> on Patreon of me talking about it because I cannot get enough of that show. What I did, though, is I released the first two episodes in an epi- in, in a full episode of uh, Obsessive Viewer. So if you want to kind of get a, get a taste for what uh, those reviews are like before you commit to doing the full $2 per month uh, thing on Patreon, go to obsessiveviewer.com, listen to episode uh, 383. That is just my first two episodes of Dark from Patreon. So check that out. I- even if you don't do any of that, watch the show. Dark is just really good. It's right up everyone's alley. If you're listening to a Twilight Zone podcast, you will like Dark. So anyway, that's one thing. Uh, The next thing I want to say is that I saw the movie Don't Worry Darling, which again, hard sell, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. At the $2 level, I had an immediate reaction review. I spent about 45 minutes just talking, talking through my feelings about Don't Worry Darling. Um, but I'm going to share some, a little bit of, uh, a little bit here. (laughs) I'm not going to spoil. Don't worry, darling. I do. I do go into spoilers on Patreon, but don't worry, darling was so disappointing to me. And it's, it's Olivia Wilde's, uh, sophomore effort. She, uh, her directorial debut was a few years ago with Booksmart, which I loved. I loved Booksmart. I thought it was very good, very funny. A, a very fun twist on that kind of last night of freedom or last night of high school kind of um, trope coming of age story storyline and everything. Very good. Really loved it. Don't Worry Darling had me excited because I really like Florence Pugh and the plot and the previews made it look like this was right up my alley. It looked ex- it looked like it had very strong Twilight Zone vibes, Black Mirror vibes, all of that. Um, I'm not going to spoil it, but Don't Worry Darling was a massive disappointment. It was very... I, I, I don't want to say too much, but the plot is a blatant ripoff. Blatant ripoff of much better science fiction that came before it and the plot like what's going on and everything in it does not does not stand up to an ounce of scrutiny not at all I like I kind of laughed at the end of the movie because I thought because the immediate question I have at the end of the movie is a question that cannot be answered in the movie like the movie that like the question that I have about what happens after the movie it becomes incredibly clear about what happens after the movie because the movie does not think too far ahead and it's just dumb. It, it was really, really bad. So I was very disappointed and don't worry, darling. Um, uh, check out Patreon if you're interested in hearing more thoughts about that. Um, and then another, <laughs> another Patreon plug. I'm so sorry. Um, I am nearly done with season one of for all mankind on Apple TV plus and I'm about, I, I'm, I've watched seven episodes. I'll have Patreon reviews at the $2 level uh, starting on October 24th and running through, hopefully through the end of the year, really, um, to finish all three seasons. But, oh man, For All Mankind is so good. It is so interesting. It is just this beautiful alternate reality. But it what what I find fascinating about it is that it has this idealistic view of what the world would have been like if we continued 
innovating space travel and everything. And what it's getting into now is a lot of personal issues and isolation. And it's just, it's so, it's so good. It's so good for all mankind. Definitely recommend it. And then finally, I just want to shout out that there's a show coming up on Amazon Prime with Chloe Grace Moretz called The Peripheral. Um, Looks like an interesting sci-fi series. I don't know anything about it except that it has something to do with maybe a simulation or something. I'm not sure, but it looks interesting. So I'm that, that kind of has me a little curious. So anyway, that's what I've been up to with the world of science and fiction. Uh, so now let me go into my, uh, review of the fugitive. And what I knew before going into this episode was I had no idea. The title is a pretty generic title. Um, and I kind of had, I kind of approached this with, uh, similar thoughts, uh, that I had going into the hunt a few weeks ago or about a month or so ago. I don't remember. Time is irrelevant. Um, and I thought that maybe, uh, like with the hunt, I thought it was about like mob justice or something. And with the fugitive, I thought maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's the same type of thing. Maybe that's what I thought it Maybe that's what it would be. Um, And I did some like light Googling (laughs) because I was wondering like, um, obviously the movie, the fugitive from the nineties was based on the TV series, the fugitive. Um, and I was curious, like, was the fugitive like TV show airing at this point? It was maybe, was, was maybe the title, the fugitive, just kind of like a fun little Easter egg or whatever. Um, I, what I found out was that this episode actually predates the fugitive TV series by one year. So, uh, that's not the case, but I will say that hearing the title, the fugitive, like between the TV series and the 1990s Harrison Ford movie, obviously my mind does not jump to the, to the twilight zone when I hear that title. So I had nothing really to go on in terms of what this episode was about. Um, and yeah, that's, that's basically all I have for for what I knew before. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and read a plot summary courtesy of the Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Of course, as always, I'm going to be spoiling the episode from here on out. So if you haven't seen the episode, please go watch it. It's available to stream on Paramount Plus and everywhere. uh, Like, I don't know, it's available digitally. Actually, as of this recording on Voodoo, um, they have the digital copy for the complete series for $50 on sale now, which is really tempting, but I'm broke, so I can't, <laughs> and it would be, it would be silly for me to get it because I have Paramount Plus. I have the DVD set. I don't know. Anyway, so fair warning, spoilers on, I'm going to go into, uh, the plot summary for The Fugitive. Young Jenny lives with Mrs. Gann, a torturous aunt, but finds happiness in the same building with a tenant known to neighborhood children as Old Ben. The old man has a unique gift of shape-shifting and performing small feats of magic for their amusement. When two men arrive in search of Old Ben, he reveals his secret to Jenny. He's from another world and needs to flee this world for another. In his final act before leaving, Ben cures Jenny so she'll no longer have a need for the leg brace. When the men looking for Ben notice Jenny is walking without the brace, they cause Jenny to take seriously ill, knowing Ben will return to cure her. Ben does at the cost of revealing himself to the strangers. It turns out that Ben is a king and the men seeking him are his subjects. Uh, Jenny pleads for Ben to either stay or take her with him, but the subjects disapprove. 
until Jenny comes up with an idea. Alone together, Ben transforms into Jenny, forcing the subjects to take both of them, fearing they might take the wrong one. A charming fantasy that made a monster into a prince and a cripple a queen. Uh... So, yeah, so this episode stars, uh, as old Ben, it stars J. Pat O'Malley, and this is his second of four Twilight Zone appearances. We previously saw him in season one's The Chaser, and next we'll see from him is in season five in the episode The Self-Improvement of Salvador Ross. Uh, a couple of other notable credits from him is that he appeared in one episode of the Craft Theater that was written by Serling, and that episode was aired in 1953, and it was titled The Twilight Rounds. And he also appeared in the Serling-scripted Playhouse 90 episode Bomber's Moon in 1958, which I covered in episode 34 of the podcast when I reviewed uh, King Nine Will Not Return. Uh, co-starring as Jenny is Susan Gordon. This was her only appearance on the Twilight Zone. And um, as for a bit of a Twilight Zone connection, she did appear in 1959 in a live TV presentation of Miracle on 34th Street opposite Ed Wynn, um, who played Santa. And he, of course, was in One for the Angels. Um, she, uh, Susan Gordon apparently retired from acting in the late 1960s, so she doesn't have much on her IMDb, and she passed away in 2011. Writer for this episode is Charles Beaumont. This is his 12th of 22 Twilight Zone episodes. We previously saw, uh, his work in Dead Man's Shoes, and next we'll see from him is Person or Persons Unknown, which is actually going to be in a couple of episodes. And rounding out the talent rundown, uh, director for this episode was Richard L. Bear. This is his sixth of seven Twilight Zone episodes. Previously, we saw his work last last time on uh, To Serve Man. And next we'll see from him is season five's What's in the Box. So with the talent rundown, let me go into my thoughts on The Fugitive. And I'm going to go ahead and just say right up top that I was not a fan of this episode. And I have some issues with it that I'm going to try to work out uh, in this review. Um, It's just stuff that I can't really... It'll be interesting because here's the thing. The entire point of my whole project with this, this entire podcast, is contingent on me watching The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. And I think one of the strengths of that, or one of the one of the things that I find enjoyment in that, is discovering the social commentary and discovering the meanings behind things and connecting it to like our modern era. And and unfortunately, sometimes that can be, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, to a kind of depressing end because it makes me realize like, oh, maybe, maybe we haven't progressed as far as we should have as a society or as a species or what have you, if we're still dealing with the same problems. That is something that I find really fascinating about doing this podcast and watching this show for the first time. The other side of that, and this is something that I try not to make too big of a deal about in in uh, in my reviews, or I try not to harp on it too much, but the other side of it is that I'm a 36-year-old dude in 2022, and I am, we are in an era where there is a lot of progressive stances and a lot of... Um, a lot of calls for problem, but like of things being problematic and everything. And 
I, I try, like, I try not to, like, I try to see this through the lens of, like, the 60s and everything, um, and I'm aware that it's a different time, but I, I found myself kind of struggling in this episode to reconcile, like, the ending with, with, like, the kind of modern, uh, things that have, that are, you know, in our society and that have, that have been, uh, talked about openly and everything, in particular, you know, um, uh, I don't know how to, uh, like predatory behavior and grooming and, and things like that. Not, not to say that this, that this episode has that or is intended to be that. And that's the struggle point for me. That's where I'm struggling with it because I know, I'm sure that Charles Beaumont didn't intend to have any like skeevy kind of points in this, but the finished product doesn't really gel with my, you know, douchebag millennial liberal guy in the 2022 sensibilities. And that's something I'm going to have to try to work through in this review. But I'm, as always, I'm going to try to be as fair and and honest as I can be. And uh, hopefully I don't catch too much flack for, you know, uh, for for my thoughts on, on this show. I don't know. Because um, again, I'm also reviewing this in a vacuum. Like, I don't know if this is a point of contention with the fan base, I don't know how people feel about this episode. I don't know if I'm overreacting and having a an adverse reaction to the episode or if there's something I'm missing. I don't know. But anyway, I guess that's kind of a disclaimer for this review, but I'm going to press on and go into my review of The Fugitive. So we open on a playground. There's a bunch of kids playing baseball with old Ben standing by. Um, and at first I thought, oh, I wonder if this is going to have anything to do with baseball, but not really, but it is a good way to kind of introduce us to, um, to the fact that we're on earth, first of all, like positioning us there and just showing this just piece of Americana and just showing these kids playing America's pastime, um, on a playground in a, in a, um, in a park and just it it is like a slice of Americana, and I find that to be really, um, uh, really a really good way to just bring us into where we are. It's kind of similar, honestly, to the beginning of, uh, to a very lesser extent, or to to a bigger extent in in this one, but, um, to the beginning of the monsters are doing on Maple Street. Like Maple Street starts with just a shot of the perfect American suburban town, or per. Uh, suburban neighborhood like the like what every like that that idea of like a like a like you know the idealized version of america i guess in the 60s um this is not too different from that because this is just this is the most like american thing you can do like the only thing that's missing is they're not like eating hot dogs or anything um so anyway the kids get into an argument over um a call, uh, Jenny runs up and, and yells at the kid that's playing the umpire and saying that, that it was a, um, uh, that it was a ball and he called a strike, all that. And so old Ben comes up and he, he kind of settles everything down. He, um, he tries to calm everyone down and then he, I like, he says that he, like he goes up to bat next. And this is where we get our first inclination of the twilight zone element, which is him being an alien. (laughs) Um, He's at the bat, he hits the ball and it flies up and he, and he hits a home run and it goes very far and everything like that, which I'm very curious how they achieved that shot. I don't know if it's like something that they just 
put like it looks like it was something that they um composited a ball onto the frame and then and then moved it because it looks it looks it looks like a, like a visual effect, obviously, um, but I think that that also just kind of makes it have this more magical appeal to it because there's like this glow on the ball when it's flying in the air, and it just feels like that coupled with the music cue in that just feels very satisfying in a way because that is where we're getting into like the whole magic element and everything and knowing that there's there's stuff going on that that is normal for these kids. Um, but not for us. And I don't know that just kind of surreal kind of imagery is, is pretty, uh, satisfying to bring us into it. And so a kid runs up, says that it's not fair. You said you weren't going to use magic anymore. So that tells us that, you know, this guy is magic and he has some kind of magic abilities or, uh, what have you. And that's, that's a pretty enticing introduction. Um, and so, and and I enjoy that. Uh, up until this point, I'm not really engaged with it all that much, but I'm intrigued by it. And so they vote to play uh, Spaceman instead of Baseball. And Ben says that, oh, Jenny, it's your turn to be the Martian. Um, and then she says that she can't because she can't turn into things like the old man uh, can. And everyone agrees. And here's the part that I found interesting. And I think that this is a bit of a missed opportunity in the entire episode. But the boys agree that she shouldn't be the Martian because she moves too slowly because she has a leg brace. And that is something that comes in like right in the next in the next like line too. Um, they say like, well, maybe she can she can run the ship or she can be the captain, of the, the captain of the ship. Uh, so she says the spaceship is going to be over there and I'm going to be the captain. And the boys argue saying like, who heard of a dame with a brace being a captain? Um, and so she says, okay, well, I'll be the stowaway, uh, which, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting, um, foreshadowing for the ending. But anyway, um, just the fact that she has a leg brace, I thought maybe that was going to be something that would come into play or be like kind of an overarching theme throughout the episode that she can do whatever she wants, or she, she has these doubts about what she can do. That's not the case. I think it would have been a little bit, inter uh, uh, quite a bit more interesting uh, if that, if it had gone that route, but also I kind of think that it would have been, I mean, it would have led to a, a more, a different story than what we got, but also a, a better one, to be honest. Um, so, uh, while they're getting ready to play Martian, I started to wonder, um, like, are they even on earth? Is this, is this going to reveal that they're not even on earth or anything? And it, that's not the case, but, I feel, I feel like that could have been an interesting angle too. And I was really wondering who old Ben was and what are the kids' relationship to him? Like, why are these kids hanging out with this old man? Um, so, uh, they start to play and <laughs> I loved this cause I think it was Howie. Um, like they, they are talking and, um, I think Jenny says like, Oh, Hey, um, uh, is there any chance a Martian got on board? And then I think it's how he says, no, this ship is heretically sealed, <laughs> uh, which I, which I thought was very, very charming and everything. And so, uh, so the Martian comes from behind the rock and it's the old man as he is transformed into it. 
and then they fire their invisible weapons at him uh and and he falls down and then comes back as ben um uh but from behind the rock and he's like oh you got me you got me and all that it's it's fun it's cheeky it's fun i will say that even though this is obviously a few years before uh the outer limits started the just the creature design it just really made me think of the outer limits and how the outer limits has like the bear in each episode um i think that's what it's called i don't know but anyway shout out to my friend victor who does the outer limits podcast uh um, yeah, he's back and he's doing more stuff. So awesome. Uh, anyway, so after the, uh, the Martian game is done, we get Rod Serling's opening narration as he's sitting on a park bench, uh, just off screen. And here is his opening narration for The Fugitive. It's been said that science fiction and fantasy are two different things. Science fiction, the improbable made possible. Fantasy, the impossible made probable. What would you have if you put these two different things together? Well, you'd have an old man named Ben who knows a lot of tricks most people don't know, and a little girl named Jenny who loves him, and a journey into the heart of the Twilight Zone. So I really like that at the, at the start of this, he is describing the differences between science fiction and fantasy. Um, and I kind of, it made me wonder. So this is the third season of the Twilight Zone, and it reminded me of back in... I guess it was 1959, right? When uh, the famous Mike Wallace interview with Rod Serling before The Twilight Zone aired. And in that interview, Mike Wallace asks him, like, why science fiction? Like, what, like, do you think that, like, I can't remember exactly what he asked him, but basically the implication was that, like, don't you want people to take you seriously or anything? So that is just, like, showing that, you know, um... Science fiction was not a serious contender in terms of genre storytelling or anything, or in terms of storytelling on television. Um, and it wasn't serious. Like there's a lot, like a, it's a B movie kind of era for science fiction. So I wonder, uh, like, and maybe I should do some research or something, or maybe there, I would love to read like a history of like science fiction or something in, in American media. I don't know if something like that exists. If, if, if there are book recommendations you have for me for this subject, please let me know. But I wonder how much of that has had changed uh, with the Twilight Zone airing beginning in 1959, which, by the way, we just passed the uh, uh, the anniversary. I think it was what, October 2nd, I think, when Where Is Everybody aired. Um, but anyway, the uh, yeah. So so anyway, the I wonder how the kind of pop culture zeitgeist uh, changed in terms of its relation and, and attitude towards science fiction and fantasy storytelling after being almost three seasons into The Twilight Zone. So I'm curious. Then again, The Twilight Zone got canceled. So, <laughs> I mean, who knows? Uh, so yeah, but anyway, that's just something that I was kind of wondering about. So after the opening narration, we come back and we have Ben roller skating with Jenny on his back. Uh, they're going down a residential street. It looks like kind of like New York city kind of, uh, place. It actually looks like the, the set. And I don't know if it was like a back lot or whatever, but the set looks very similar to, uh, what they used for one for the angels back in season one. And so, uh, so then they, they stand, they sit, they stand on the stoop of the apartment building and, uh, Jenny 
uh oh ben says all right well, all right well let's go up oh first they have the little conversation where uh like she gives him a peck on the cheek and then he says this like impromptu like po- poetry about it it's just, just a very fun kind of cute back and forth and uh, saying like what's that from and oh it's an earth poem oh you made it up then like just that those quips are that banter is really fun um but she says, uh, like he says, like, all right, up we go. And then she's like, well, what about your skates? Because you can't, you know, climb the stairs and skates. So he kicks them off and then makes them disappear with his hands. Very interesting. And that's where we get our first shot of the two um, government looking men uh, staring as they go inside. And... Those men, I, I really, I do appreciate the kind of switcheroo of the episode at the end because the costuming of the episode and the framing of the two men really, really make them look like they are like government agents that are out to get uh, Ben and capitalize on his powers and everything, that kind of classic story. And so I really like that level of misdirection for the episode because that's not what it is. And it turns out to be something completely different and much less nefarious. Um, but everything from down from the costumes to just the framing of it just looks very much like intimidating government men that are looking to capitalize on, on something that's out of this world or supernatural or paranormal, whatever. Um, so as they're climbing the stairs, as Ben is carrying her up the stairs, uh, Jenny asks him why he doesn't make her leg well. And he doesn't really give an, an exact answer. He says that it would take all the fun away from him carrying her up the stairs. And that then if she, uh, he says that it's best that I don't because then you'd get a younger boyfriend, which again, this episode just, I, I have some issues with it. And it's just, I, I don't know. I don't know, guys. I'll, I'll save that for the end, but it just, it rubs me the wrong way, and and I don't know. But anyway, so uh, they get up to the step, up to the top of the stairs, and they go to uh, Jenny's apartment where her aunt is waiting for her. And Ben, uh, basically, basically her her aunt just berates her, screams at her, uh, and like yells at her and tells her that you know she's not going to get any supper. She's going to get she uh, like you, she's going to end up in an orphanage or whatever. Very, very just like horrible, horrible, like abusive lines and everything toward her. And Ben kind of steps up and, and defends her and tells her not to speak to Jenny like that again. Um, and her aunt just screams at him and tells him to stop hanging around Jenny. Um, you like, I don't know what you're doing. You need to, you need to stow, stay away. So then uh, she slams the door in his face, sends Jenny to bed with no dinner. And then immediately after that, the two men knock on the door to ask questions about Ben. And Agnes is her name. She, she asks if they're cops and they just say, yeah, sort of. Um, and she's like, well, what did he do? And like, they're immediately dismissive. And I think that that's interesting because they are, are, they're very much, um, they very much care for Ben it, although we don't know that yet. So it's interesting that they're just like, we'll ask the questions. And they ask like how long he's lived there. She says a year and a half. And she says that no one knows where he's from or what his real name is. And she says that the kids, 
uh, say that he's good with tricks, but I never see him do any. So it's just, it's an interesting kind of window into the atmosphere of this relationship between Ben and the kids. And, uh, as they're talking, Jenny sneaks out of the apartment and goes over to Ben's, um, and she knocks and comes in and tells him about the two men, which I thought was interesting because, uh, Ben just immediately thinks like, oh, I didn't think she would actually call the cops. And he's like, she's like, no, 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 these are two different guys. Um, she didn't call them. They're just there asking about you. And he asks what they look like. And when she describes them, she's like, yep, that's them. They caught up with me. And he won't tell her who they are or where they come from or anything, which makes sense, but also is a little bit, I don't know. It just, it kind of feels like a little bit belabored, I guess. And then they knock on the door and, uh, as they're kind of knocking on the door, he's saying like, no, it's too late. Um, and so she tells him like, you can hide, you can hide under the bed or in the closet, whatever, they'll never find you. And I found that interesting because that's how the scene ends. And we get an act break to commercial, which that is, that is a good like act break because we don't know, like the suspense is, is pretty solid there. And at that point, I was wondering, I felt like it was pretty obvious, but I was still wondering, like, okay, he must be some kind of alien. But I was wondering, are who are the men that are chasing him? I was very much on that wavelength of thinking that they are government government entities that are trying to E.T. him, basically. <laughs> um, and I was wondering if he was the monster or if they were. And that is something that's going to kind of permeate throughout it because I don't think either one of them are monsters at all, but I was kind of convinced that one, one or the other was going to be a monster in the story. And so we come back from the commercial break and Ben is gone. Uh, so Jenny answers the door and she just kind of says like, oh yeah, he's not here. I came over here and he wasn't here. He's probably, you know, in the park feeding pigeons. And I thought that that was a nice touch that she says the thing about feeding the pigeons because it signals that he's a harmless old man. And it's like she's subtly saying to these people that she thinks are, you know, government agents or, or, or are there to take Ben, obviously, or think that he's in, in some kind of trouble or dangerous, she's signaling to them like, yeah, he's probably in the park feeding pigeons, you know, that, that perfectly innocuous, very non-threatening thing that old people do. And so I kind of appreciated that a little bit, even if, you know, the entire storyline, I don't really, <laughs> don't really like all that much, but I thought that was a nice touch in terms of subtlety in the screenwriting and the dialogue. And so they leave and, Agnes takes Jenny back home and she's even more furious. She screams at her, threatens to beat her. The, she says and, and sends her to bed, but she says like, I should beat you senseless, but honestly, I'm too tired. So just go to bed. Um, and so she goes to bed and we see that she had a small mouse in her pocket and it's Ben. He transformed into the mouse. Pretty cool. Pretty fine. Um, and so that's where we get are more information and more detail as, as the show is kind of un slowly unfurling this information to us and everything. So he says, uh, first of all, he, he kind of tells her that she should start really minding her aunt and that she should forgive her for, for, you know, what she's, what she does and everything. And he says that Agnes is a very nervous person and thus not, not wholly responsible for her actions, which I don't know. I, again, I don't know, 
Because I get the logic of that, and I understand that this is the show communicating to us that Ben is a compassionate person, and he has this ability to read people as well, and he has this kind of uh, compassion within him. But it honestly also feels like just excusing extremely toxic behavior like you should you should mind your aunt and you should you should forgive her and everything never mind the fact that she is incredibly abusive and and uh very much you know gonna give you like uh, she's threatening you regularly so i don't know so jenny asks what what uh ben's plan is what he's gonna do and he doesn't know he just says i wish i knew and she, she then finally asks like why are they after you are you a criminal and he says well in a way and i liked this i thought this was kind of cute she says did you rob a bank and he says no did you kill somebody no and then she says uh she says oh then you must be a communist and i thought that was kind of fun kind of like the heretically sealed line earlier um, which by the way, I kind of wish that the other kids were part of the story more. Really, I wish that the entire story was different, to be honest, but um, I wish that there was more interaction with the group of kids and not just Jenny and Ben, because I feel like I would feel a little bit better about the ending, I guess, if they went a different avenue and had the kids as a group involved, because it feels a little sketchy now. So anyway, Ben looks outside and sees them and, uh, she asks, why don't, why don't you just change, uh, your shape? And he just kind of dismisses that with, they'd know they're quite clever, which I feel like is kind of a loose kind of, uh, bandaid on a question that is a, a natural question that will pop up because I don't know, it just, it just doesn't really feel like a, uh, a suitable enough ex, ex, uh, explanation for that purpose. So he then says that his true form is something she's never seen. And he reveals to her that she's, that he is from another planet, uh, that's far away from here, not even in the solar system. She says that she knew it. <laughs> like she was like, yeah, I knew it. Um, and at this point I really thought that he, it was going to turn out that he was going to be some hideous monster. And even Jenny thought that, uh, because he says that, you know, um, he says that about, you know, it's a, something that he, that she's never seen and he doesn't want to show her his true form. And so he, uh, she says, uh, you must be hideous then. And then he says like, you know, there are a lot of people back home who found me quite attractive. Um, so he says that the men are trying to catch him to send him back, but he doesn't want to go back. And, he is now forced to presumably go on the run again, which is what he's going to do. But before he goes, there's one thing that he wants to do, and that's finally fix her leg. And he uses this, uh, this little device to do it. But before that, uh, we get a shot of Agnes uh, in the kitchen overhearing Jenny talking. And Jenny says, uh, is it going to hurt? And be careful, which... Again, this episode has this sketchy kind of underlining thing to it. Like, that would be terrifying to hear from the other room. Like, Agnes is the guardian of Jenny. And she sees Ben as this criminal. She now sees him as a criminal because there are people of authority that are looking for him from her perspective. And she already didn't approve of him spending time with Jenny 
Um, and he, she thought that it was weird that they were, uh, hanging around, uh, hanging around with him and everything. And so to, for her to overhear her, her niece saying, is it going to hurt and be careful? Like, it's just, I don't know. I just, I, it, it leaves a, a poor taste in my mouth of what the implication could be if, if someone were in that position and overheard that from this, this little girl's bedroom. Um, so Ben tells Jenny to close her eyes and he has this like, I think it, oh God, is, uh, I, th- I think this is the right word. It's like a whirring dervish. Is that, is that, is that what it's called? A whirring dervish? I don't know. Uh, but it's some kind of like handheld device and he, uh, presses a button and it whirs to life and, uh, he uses it over her leg and she's fine. Um, so Agnes walks in then, but by the time she's inside, Ben is gone. He's now a fly who flies out the window and Jenny gets up to and sees that her leg is healed. And so she calls to Ben out the window and tells him not to leave her. And here's the thing. Um, I think this would have been a fine ending point for the episode. I would have liked to have had the men kind of confront Jenny and explain who Ben is after he has left. Um, and I feel like that would have been a more profound ending because the moral would have been that the good in the world is being pursued by bad or being pursued by being the good in the world is not being let alone to do the good in the world. The good in the world is being pursued by other people. And so like Ben is a positive figure, but the bad in the life of Jenny is pushing him away. Agnes doesn't want him to be there. Uh, the, the men are trying to take him home and take him away from Jenny and the kids and everything when he wants to just do good for others. And I think that that would have been a more interesting storyline rather than what we got. And this would have been a good stopping point for it, but it's not. So let's move on. Uh, Jenny leaves and is stopped at the stairs by the two men who immediately notice that her leg brace is gone. They ask how it was fixed and she just brushes past them and they pull a device of their own and point it at her. One of them stops and says no. And then the other one says, no, this is the only way. And they, you know, point it at her and shoot basically. And I thought that they were just going to put her back in the leg brace and like they were going to have her leg back to how it was in order to lure Ben back so that he could heal it again. Um, but instead it just looks like she just passes out. And here's where my qualms with the end of the episode get a little bit more complex and everything because the next scene shows Jenny unconscious in bed or asleep. I'm not sure. And the doctor examines her and shakes his head at Agnes and says, yeah, she's not all right. And Agnes, who's clearly distraught, asks why she went downstairs in the first place without her leg brace. But the doctor um, corrects her and says like, hey, you know, her leg is perfectly fine, but she is in serious condition and there's nothing more we can do except wait. And Agnes is like, do you mean that she's that she's dying? Um, and here's the thing. Immediately after that, Agnes fixes the bed and leaves Jenny to sleep. And I feel like this is this is a tricky territory for this episode because Agnes has been established, well established in this episode to be a pretty terrible individual. She is a terrible guardian for Jenny. She's very aggressive. She threatens physical abuse while spewing emotional abuse. 
um, in every scene that she's in, which I take to mean, which I take to, uh, like, I'm inferring that the show is communicating to us that, like, hey, it's okay that this little girl is going to be taken away from her planet and Agnes is going to be left all alone because Agnes is an evil person. I understand the logic of that. I get it. I absolutely get it. However, this scene shows that Agnes has genuine concern for Jenny. And I feel like this makes the ending work even less for me because I don't understand why, why make a story about a girl being taken away by aliens or willingly going with aliens and not about a toxic and abusive aunt learning the error of her ways. It's just really peculiar to me that this episode goes that goes that route instead of having a, a more direct, like kind of change of heart or healing nature with the relationship between Agnes and Jenny. It's just really weird. I I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm not a fan of it. I, I think that there's more that could have been done there. I mean, I'm glad that I'm glad that Jenny gets away from Agnes. That's for sure. But also I just feel like it, it just feels wrong. It feels weird. I, I, I don't know. I'll talk more when we get to the ending. Anyway, Jenny wakes up in bed and she hears the fly in the room, sees that it's Ben. He lands on the chair next to the bed and he comes back uh, into his human form. And he says that he couldn't stay away from his best friend for very long. And she asks if he's, if she's going to die. And he's, (laughs) he's like, yeah, but you know, not for a very long time. Uh, Let me fix you up. So he tells her to close her eyes again. He uses the device again. She then opens her eyes. She's good as new. She hugs him. Very nice, very charming uh, moment and everything. And then obviously this is going to lure the men back and everything. So she sees, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Ben already knows that they're there. And, uh, oh, no, 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 that's what happens. Yeah, she sees something in the room uh, with while Ben's back is turned. And it's just the two men standing in the in the room. Um, and then he already knows that they're there. He kind of turns around and he's like, yep, hey, guys. Um, and they address him as your majesty, which is, um, our first, like, this is where we're getting the information about who Ben is in, in everything. Um, he kind of admonishes them a little bit, says that it was a terrible thing for them to do that to her. And he then kind of turns to Jenny and explains, Hey, okay, here's the deal. I'm actually, I'm a fraud. I'm not a criminal. And these people aren't police. They're my subjects and I'm their king. And so he explains that he's been kind of running away um, from his obligations as king because he says that he wasn't cut out to be king. And after the first thousand years, I knew I had 4,000 more until I could name a replacement and I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. I I wanted to escape, which I get, you know, burnout is a real thing (laughs) and that work-life balance is very important. Uh, which by the way, on Patreon, I do severance reviews as well. Anyway, uh, they say, uh, they explain that he was a great King and that's why they want him back so fervently and everything, which is good. I like this switch around. I like this switcheroo because the episode does tend to lean toward that, that idea of Ben being, you know, not a good person or a criminal of some kind. So his, his closeness with Jenny is somewhat suspect throughout the episode, but this kind of eases that a little bit for a second, at least. Um, 
And so Ben says, yeah, I'm going to have to go back. And Jenny's like, no, I don't want you to go. Take me with you. And the men are just like, hey, yeah, that's not allowed. The council would never allow it and everything. And so Jenny just basically starts pleading with him to take her with him, which is which is touching. It's it's sad and everything. And then he says, I can't. My hands are tied. And then she whispers something in his ear. And at that point, I'm like, are they going to do a body swap thing? Like, I thought that I thought that he was going to transform one of the one of the men into Jenny. And then Jenny was going to be transformed into him so that she could he could smuggle her into the and onto his planet. That's not the case. What happens is the men give them their privacy in the room. We go they go into the living room. We see that the the time is kind of frozen in there, which is good. Like that's a good uh, piece of information because it explains how or ex- explains the logistics of the men just popping up in the room. Um, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, uh, they go they return to the room to find two Jennies. And I thought, OK, that's kind of funny. And so the Jennies say in unison that they'll have to take both of them uh, uh, because it would be really embarrassing and really bad if they brought the wrong one back Um, and it would be really bad for them. And then they walk out um, and Jenny goes to live uh, on a distant planet with uh, with her best friend. Uh, And then we get Serling's closing narration as he sits on Jenny's bed holding a like a headshot, basically, uh, photograph. And here is his closing narration for The Fugitive. Mrs. Gann will be in for a big surprise when she finds this under Jenny's pillow. Because Mrs. Gann has more temper than imagination. She'll never dream that this is a picture of old Ben as he really looks. And it will never occur to her that eventually her niece will grow up to be an honest-to-goodness queen somewhere in the twilight zone. So I will say that I do like the idea of him saying that, that Mrs. Gann has more temper than imagination because she says earlier in the episode that, uh, that she doesn't, that, that the kids say that, um, Ben performs magic or does these tricks, but she's never seen them. Like, I, I get that. I, I enjoy that because she is a very disgruntled, um, older woman. And that is in contrast to Ben being a fun loving, easygoing old man. But this episode bothers me so much. And partially it's because, I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> like when when we see the picture, I immediately thought like okay, this is this is kind of gross because I feel like I feel like Jenny is supposed to be like what, 11 years old. And the picture of old Ben's true form looks like a mid early to mid 20s man. And I feel like that's probably inaccurate of me. I think that maybe that's a little bit of just like 60s teenagers probably looked older or maybe I think that 60s teenagers looked older because adults played teenagers and 60s stuff a lot and everything I don't know but he looks he doesn't look he doesn't look like he's 11 or 12 he does not look like he is in an appropriate age uh for Jenny and the fact that Serling says that that Jenny will grow up to be an honest to goodness queen just feels really weird to me. I was watching this with my girlfriend, Jess, and she said, um, 
she said she said that it kind of feels like he's grooming her to be queen and I'm inclined to agree a little bit. Like, I don't understand. Why not make it more apparent that he is an age appropriate, uh, that he's age appropriate in it? Even then, even if there was a picture of like an 11 year old boy, that still doesn't really fit all that well for me because we got the line of dialogue where Ben says that he ruled, ruled his planet for a thousand years and he knows that he has 4,000 more, which I don't know the logistics of this. I don't know if he is going to, you know, give magic to Jenny or it's going to be a situation where he just grows. He watches Jenny grow old for, you know, the 70 some years, um, that they'll have and then move on to, you know, ruling as as a king for another three like three thousand and like uh three thousand nine hundred and fifteen years or whatever um i just don't get it and plus again like it's just sketchy it's it's kind of it's kind of gross to me honestly because even if he was age appropriate he's been alive for and granted i don't know how long years are on his planet but the implication is like a thousand years is a long distance, a long amount of time, obviously. So like he has lived much longer than she has. And it just feels, it just doesn't work for me. And I feel like there, there are so many other points that could have been done with this. There are so many other morals that could have been done or could have been explored, but this is just like, it's presented as a child escaping from a bad home life, which is admirable. And it's, it's a pretty heavy, heavy thematic storyline to explore, but it also feels like it's, um, it doesn't really give any closure to Agnes or Mrs. Gann in the story because she, like she's she's just a, a she's just an evil person. She's just a mean um very ill-equipped for raising a child person. And she doesn't get any real closure from it. Like I wish that if this was going to be a story about uh Jenny escaping from a bad home life, I wish that there would have been a scene with Mrs. Gann like realizing like, "Oh, I shouldn't have treated her horribly." Like this is this is my fault, but there isn't any closure to that. In fact, the last scene we have with Mrs. Gann is her being worried about Jenny's health because she thinks that she is going to die. And that's, I don't know. It's just, it just doesn't really connect with me. And I'm very curious if the Twilight Zone fan base feels the same way or similar way to this episode, because I don't know how the episode can justify itself or can be justified, uh, with the choices it makes. And I don't know how, I don't know how I can reconcile my negative reaction to it with how it could have possibly been perceived back then or in a different time, which is frustrating to me because I never want to be in that position. I never want to be in a position where I'm watching an episode of the twilight zone and thinking, Oh, well, it was a different time because the Twilight Zone is timeless. I'm I'm over halfway through the series. This show is in, immaculate. It's timeless. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. It is incredible. So to have an episode that feels that feels this like dated and misguided just leaves a sour taste in my mouth. And it, it's a little bit frustrating to me. 
and it's just it's a bummer and especially on like a on another note it's kind of a bummer because I haven't really been that into the last few episodes of The Twilight Zone. I think The Hunt was the last episode where I was like, oh, this is a really good, strong episode. But like the last couple of episodes, even to serve man, I wasn't that hot on. So I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully we bounce back with the like, you know, the last 10 or however many episodes of season three, um, because I know that season four is going to be an interesting experience. But I don't know. This this episode just kind of um I don't know, just kind of kind of bothered me a little bit, honestly. Um yeah. So anyway, um I got a couple pieces of trivia um for this episode. Um basically it's just light trivia. Um in Jenny's bedroom there is a bunch of stuff or there are two photos of a Chicago or a couple of Chicago White House uh, White House Chicago White Sox players. Um, let's see. Actually, let me read this. So they've been previously misidentified as Hall of Fame shortstop Luis uh, Aparicio, a sports hero of of Charles Beaumont's hometown. However, the players' uniform date to the mid nineteen thirties, not the nineteen fifties, when Luis Aparicio. Uh, played the lower portrait is actually that of right-handed White Sox pitcher Monty Stratton. Uh, oh Jesus! Uh, wow. Uh, Stratton accidentally shot himself while hunting and lost his leg as a result. Uh, he battled back after his injury to pitch to pitch in the minor leagues despite having an artificial leg. Wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah. Oh, and Jimmy Stewart played him in a 1949 biopic called The Stratton Story. Um, anyway, so I guess both pictures are Monty Stratton. And then, uh, the other thing is that this is one of four occasions in which future stars of the Beverly Hillbillies appeared on the Twilight Zone. Uh, of course, uh, Mrs. Gann is played by Nancy Culp, who went on to play Miss, uh, uh, Jane Hathaway, um, on the Beverly Hillbillies. And, um... Let's see, Raymond Bailey, uh, who played Mr. Drysdale in uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, was a doctor in the season one episode Escape Clause, and uh, Buddy Ebsen was in The Prime Mover, and uh, Donna Douglas, who played Ellie Mae Clampett, uh, was in the classic episode Eye of the Beholder from season two. So, okay, I think that that is all I've got for... Um, the fugitive, I just, I really, I really hate to say that I didn't like this episode, but honestly, I just, I didn't like the episode and I'm curious to hear what other people thought of it. And if I'm off base or if there's something that I'm missing, let me know. But honestly, just not, not, not an episode for me. And that's, that's a bummer. So yeah. All right. Well, anyway, so that's my review of the fugitive. I'm now going to round out this episode with a brief, non-spoiler review of an episode of Science Fiction Theater. This episode is Season 1, Episode 32, Beyond Return, which I'm going to play my little intro here, and then I'll review Beyond Return. (laughs) 
So, Beyond Return originally aired on December 3rd, 1955. In the plot summary, courtesy of IMDb is, A doctor discovers a way to reverse degenerative diseases. Uh, degenerate diseases. He experiments on a young woman who makes a complete recovery. He discovers she is beginning to exhibit extraordinary physical abilities, and he realizes he must reverse the process before it is too late. This episode was directed by Eddie Davis and written by Doris Gilbert, with a story by credit by Stanley Weinbaum, uh, when, and his story is called The Adaptive Ultimate. Uh, this episode stars Zachary Scott, Joan Vose, and uh, Peter Hansen. And uh, as usual, we have a pre-show demonstration by host Truman Bradley, who begins the demonstration by showing this uh, this fire alarm. It's like one of those that's on a post that has like a little uh, in case of fire break glass thing. Um, he breaks the glass, sets off the alarm and says like, oh, okay, you know, uh, the fire department is going to come and they're going to swarm the place and make sure that everything's safe. And he uses that as an analogy for how the body fights off infection. And then he shows us a chameleon in an empty tank and demonstrates the way that it blends into its surroundings. And then finally he brings like a lizard or something uh, on the screen and says that, oh, that has two tails. That's because, you know, if you were to cut off a tail, another one would grow. And so he talks about it as physical adaptation and the, sh the episode that we're going to see is about a human chameleon, basically. And then we get into the episode. It's a pretty good hook for the episode. It's very intriguing. And the episode itself is pretty solid. It follows uh, Dr. Erwin Bach and uh, Dr. Scott, who are... Um, at the beginning, they're kind of clashing because Bach is... He's widely known for his research and everything. And Dr. Scott wants to start human trials on this hormone that he's developed that can cure people. So the demonst the first demonstration he has, or the most recent demonstration in the episode, is that he healed a cat from having severe back pain and not being able to move. And I was excited. Like, I put in all caps on my notes because I'm an idiot. I put, a kitty comes into his office uh, with exclamation points because I love cats. I'm actually petting my cat right now. A uh, little pizza roll. Anyway, um, so uh, so Dr. Scott is pleading with him to let him do run tests on, you know, humans. And uh, Dr. Bach is like, hey, no, that's not going to happen. We're not going to do that. It's not ready yet or what have you. And then he's like, but if one of our patients like says it's okay, then yeah, maybe we can do this. <laughs> so there's a woman with uh, severe tuberculosis who agrees to take the, to take the hormone and see what happens. So she does. And what happens is she's cured. She's, she's cured 100%. But throughout the episode we get, as the plot summary described, we get evidence that she has these, these like extreme physical abilities and a, a somewhat lacking or different moral kind of compass um, because she's implicated on a, in, in a robbery. And I kind of liked this as a whole because it felt like the concept felt like the origin story for a supervillain, uh, to an extent, which kind of felt really kind of fun. Honestly, it felt fun. It felt like a comic book, uh, storyline, um, which I was kind of on board with. I thought that overall, I thought this episode was just okay. It was, it was fine. But it was pretty entertaining. It was it was interesting. 
Um, and as the episode is progressing, the, like the drama that comes into play, like it's very light sort of, it's, it's, it's pretty light and there's a bit of tension with them realizing like, okay, it, it's kind of like heading off at the past, this idea of creating a monster sort of thing, like kind of the Frankenstein's monster effect. Um, because they realize like, oh, okay, well, you know, when we, like she, when she first came up from having the hormone, uh, Dr. Bach is like, oh, hey, yeah, well, how do you feel? And she says something like, oh, I'm really tired and drowsy and all that. And then so he has a nurse administer, um, like some, something to, you know, um, I think an iron supplement or something like that. And he says, like, he tells Dr. Scott, like, oh, hey, yeah, the, um, you know, the puncture wound healed immediately and everything. And what I find interesting about it is that the episode does, it takes that idea and instead of going, going to where I would expect it to go, which would be to an av down an avenue where, uh, it's exploring like, well, what does this mean for like human evolution? What does this mean for, uh, like what we can achieve as human beings and everything? Instead of doing that, it goes down a route of her experiencing the power that she feels now and how that gives her, gives her from her perspective license to do things that are not legal and that are harmful to others. So it has this, like, like I said, it's kind of like an origin for a supervillain story. So it, the drama, the dramatic conceit of the episode is that Dr. Bach and Dr. Scott have to stop this woman who is almost superhuman at this point. And so the tension comes when they have to basically drug her, uh, in order to get her, uh, get her into this, uh, reversal surgery that they have to do. Um, and so I won't give away what happens, but it's, it's pretty interesting. There's, there's a little bit of a time element to it in terms of the suspense at the end, which I appreciated and thought was fun. But overall, it's not my favorite episode of science fiction theater. I think that some of the, some of the aspects of it or some of the themes or thematic elements of it are interesting and, uh, curious to me, but for the most part, it didn't really grab me as much as, uh, as much as I would have liked it to, but it's fine. It was, it was very solid. Um, I will say that, uh, the end at the end of the episode, uh, Truman Bradley comes on and he says something like, um, something like this was a story of science fiction, but, um, you know, 50, like I did like this analogy. He said like 50 years ago at the start of the automotive age, um, it was said that human beings couldn't, couldn't ride, uh, couldn't travel more than 20 miles per hour in a vehicle. And now we have planes that go 1600 miles per hour and all of this stuff. And so it's demonstrating the like innovation and, and changing of limits on human potential are evolving rapidly throughout the years. And I, I like that sentiment and everything, but he did say like, since that reversal surgery is designed to, um, cure someone of malevolent intent, basically as a byproduct of the, of the hormone that's injected, uh, Truman Bradley says that, uh, you know, today, criminals, uh, can have a frontal lobotomy and be relieved of their urge to commit crime. And I'm like, Ooh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a little bit of outdated medical <laughs> advice and everything. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny, 
in context for for me watching it in 2022. Um, I did want to mention that there was a really good line that I think Dr. Bach says to Dr. Scott when they're trying to, when they're explaining like when, when they're trying to figure out like what the importance of the hormone is, like, like what this means for medical science and everything. And Dr. Bach says, doctors have a right. uh, My voice just cracked horribly. I'm so sorry. Doctors have a right to cure, but not to tamper with human destiny, which I thought was really interesting and, and a little bit profound. And I don't know, I really liked it. So all in all, very solid episode of, Uh, science fiction theater and to kind of wrap up this episode of anthology yeah i wasn't a fan of the fugitive uh let me know what you guys thought of it you can email me at uh matt at obsessiveviewer.com or obsessiveviewer at gmail.com um and let me know because i'm I'm curious what the fan base thinks of thinks about this and everything um yeah so next time on the podcast i will be doing uh it'll be episode 90 which is awesome like obviously i have well over a hundred episodes <laughs> under my belt for anthology with all the bonus episodes, but it's cool that, you know, in terms of the twilight zone proper, I'm getting to episode 90. Um, it's pretty awesome. So anyway, that episode is going to cover season three, episode 26 of the twilight zone, little girl lost, which you can very much expect me to be talking a lot about the Simpsons and that because <laughs> one of their treehouse of uh, horror segments, uh, was a riff on this. And, uh, for my bonus review, science fiction theater, season one, episode 33 before the beginning. So look forward to that. In the meantime, I'm going to hopefully get this, get that episode, um, I'm, I'm going to hopefully work on that episode on Sunday. So Patreon supporters will probably get that on Sunday. Um, but, uh, the main feed will, it'll show up, uh, probably next Thursday. So another incentive, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I have a bunch of content on there. Um, like I said, dark reviews, severance reviews, uh, on the $5 levels I have, um, Patreon potpourri where I've been doing a lot of sci-fi duos like, uh, the thing, um, and, and, um, invasion of the body snatchers. I did, uh, Steven Spielberg sci-fi, uh, potpourri and stuff. So anyway, a lot of fun stuff. I'm going to start playing myself out. Um, (laughs) so, uh, yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of anthology. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys are enjoying your October as well. Uh, I'll be back next time with Little Girl Lost and Before the Beginning. Until then, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes... TV, book, and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon potpourri episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Um, let's talk about work <laughs> and how each person kind of comes into the building and they're kind of greeted by Milchek, um, at least Dylan and Mark are, but, um... And I think, I think everyone else is, I can't remember, but anyway, Dylan is, uh, the first one. And that is so, I really, really like, uh, is uh, Max Cherry, I think is his name. I think I did that in the last episode too. But anyway, um, I really like his performance. He has this bubbling under the, under the surface 
energy that comes out in a very big way during the um during the mde the um music dance experience or whatever um and uh, yeah it, it that was an, that was incredible this podcast was edited and produced by matt hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com you can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts for exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.